0: Welcome to the Denver Snuffer podcast. Today, Denver addresses the question. On April 19th, 2017, you gave a talk entitled, Things to Keep Us Awake at Night. In the paper you wrote, based on the talk, you state, Adam in the presence of son Amen will return the government to our Lord. This event, Adam on day Amon or Adam in the presence of son Amen, will happen in the new temple and will be done before the Lord returns to judge the world. What is Adam on Dayaman? Why does it require a new temple? And who will be included in this great event?
1: You see, three years previous to the death of Adam, he called Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch, and Methuselah, who were all high priests with the residue of his posterity who were righteous, into the valley of Adam on Diamond, and there bestowed upon them his last blessing. And the Lord appeared unto them, and they rose up and blessed Adam and called him Michael, the prince, the archangel. And the Lord administered comfort unto Adam and said unto him, I've set thee at the, to be at the head. A multitude of nations shall come of thee, and thou art a prince, forever over them. And Adam stood up in the midst of the congregation and notwithstanding, he was bowed down with age, being full of the Holy Ghost, predicted whatsoever should befall his posterity unto the latest generation. These things were all written in the book of Enoch. See, he was one of the seven that were invited. He was one of the seven that participated. Here you have an interesting setting in which on the earth, previous to the death of Adam, we have a gathering in which there are seven people who are correctly qualified to stand before the Lord. And the Lord comes and appears unto them. And these seven who are present with Adam are now lineal descendants of Adam, members of the same family. Therefore, I would suspect. They had all things in common. And the Lord came even if only for this ceremonial moment and dwelt among them. And one of the participants in that moment on that day in that group was Enoch. And Enoch is the one who records it. And it'll be testified of at a proper time. But uh, here we have The definition of Zion, and it is diminutive, and it is temporary, and it is tightly confined to a narrow group, and it is not this thundering congregation of 3.7 million temple recommend holders. It's a very small group but it is a group to whom it is possible for the Lord to come and dwell among them. And among their number then is um, is Enoch. So we have Zion. Uh, If you want the criteria, and we've got a description, which is part uh, part of what we have in the book of Moses given to us by Joseph Smith. By the way, I was reading in Doctrine and Covenants section 107, verses 53 to 57, in in the account of the appearance with uh, with Adam and Iaman. And in uh, Moses chapter 7, verse 16, we find this. From that time forth, there were wars and bloodshed among them. But the Lord came and dwelt with his people, and they dwelt in righteousness. Which is an interesting contrast. Here you have wars and bloodshed on the one hand, but then you have the Lord and the Lord dwelling among people who are living in righteousness. The fear of the Lord was upon all nations, so great was the glory of the Lord that was upon his people. It was the glory of the Lord upon his people. It was not the glory of the Lord, it was the, the people uh, that intimidated. Uh, the Lord doesn't show himself to the wicked except unto destruction, but the Lord shows himself unto those that are prepared, and then it is the glory of the Lord upon them that others find uh, intimidating. And that was the case with um, the people of Zion. These these initial appearances of Zion in this world are connected because the first one in the valley of Adam on Diamond occurs, and Enoch is present. And the second one occurs with Enoch who was present when the Lord had dwelt with people before. And the third one will occur when Melchizedek, who was acquainted with those on the other side of the flood. He's an adult when they enter the ark. He knew of Enoch. And the option, see, Melchizedek, who was acquainted with that condition, in my view, who had to be offered the option. I mean, going on the ark and staying down here, when there's a group that are going to be leaving and going elsewhere, Noah was qualified to leave, all of them were qualified to leave, and they had to be willing to stay. Now, when you are allowed the option, and when you are going to stay but you know that there are those who are taken up. It seems like a reasonable request for Melchizedek to make that after he finishes his ministry here, that he also should be allowed to take people with him. And in the course of events, Melchizedek established a city, city of peace, city of righteousness, He was the king and he was the priest and he presided over his people in righteousness. And Abraham, who was converted to the truth, came to Melchizedek. They had a ceremonial get-together in which, among other things, there's a sacral meal. And Melchizedek, who has been waiting for this moment, hands the football to Abraham and says... At last, me and my people are gone. And so once again, Zion flees. Jehovah, speaking directly to Abraham, tells him that from this moment, from the moment God spoke to Abraham before his departure, Abraham would now become the father of all the righteous. Now you ought to ask yourself, why would that be the case? Why is it that Abraham becomes the prototype of who will be saved and the father of whomever is saved from that point going forward? When you go back to the fathers and you begin with Adam, although there were apostasies, and apostasies began immediately. It was generations before um, Eve bore Cain and thought she had a son that would at last be faithful. They were grandparents when Cain was born. And then Abel was born. And Cain slew Abel. And Seth came as a replacement to the grandparents, Adam and Eve. And from Seth reckons then the seed of the righteous. Father to son, to grandson, to great-grandson. When you look at the list of those, that are gathered together into the valley of adam on Diamond, in the first Zion where the Lord came and dwelt among them and he rose up and he called Adam Michael El being the name of God Jehovah appeared in the valley of adam on Diamond, and you have seventh from Adam being Enoch, you have a line of continuity from Adam directly down all the way until you arrive at Shem. But when you hit Shem, it interrupts. There is a complete falling away. There are no righteous fathers for Abraham his fathers had turned to idolatry. Abraham is the prototype of the saved man and the father of all who would be righteous thereafter because Abraham represents coming to the truth in a generation of apostasy. Abraham represents coming back to the light despite the fact that his fathers taught him idolatry. Abraham represents the challenge that every man who would be saved from that point forward must find themselves within and then overcome the idolatry of their fathers. Abraham is the prototype. And so Abraham is acknowledged by that same Jehovah who visited with the fathers in Adam and Diamond and identified himself again to Abraham, who after apostasy becomes literally the first, the first to return to the righteousness of the first fathers, the first to return to the religion that belonged in the beginning to mankind, the first to discover a knowledge of the beginning of the creation, as also of the planets and of the stars, as so they were made known unto the fathers. Abraham was the one who desired to be a follower of righteousness, one who possessed great knowledge, to be a greater follower of righteousness, and to possess greater knowledge still. It is this which made him a candidate the Lord could speak to. It's this that made him the prototype in his generation of what it takes to turn away from idolatry. Take a look at Doctrine and Covenants section 107, because in this we see that first Zion. Three years previous to the death of Adam, he called Seth, his son, Enos, his grandson, Canaan, the son of Enos, Mahaliel son of Canaan, Jared, son of Mahaliel, Enoch, son of Jared, and Methuselah, son of Enoch, who were all high priests with the residue of his posterity who were righteous into the valley of Adam on Diamond, and there bestowed upon them his last blessing. This is the original first patriarchal blessing being given by Adam, he having summoned them there. And as he's giving his last blessing, three years previous to his death, the Lord appeared unto them. So the Lord comes to dwell with these seven high priests and Adam. The Lord appeared unto him and they rose up and blessed Adam and called him Michael, Michael, the prince, the archangel. And the Lord administered comfort unto Adam. Ask yourself, what comfort is it that the Lord administers? He said unto him, I have set thee to be at the head. A multitude of nations shall come of thee. Thou art a prince over them forever. And Adam stood up in the midst of the congregation, and notwithstanding, he was bowed down with age, being full of the Holy Ghost, predicted whatsoever should befall his posterity unto the latest generation. These things were all written in the book of Enoch and are to be testified of in due time. This is the original covenant. This is the first father. This is what was set in motion before the death of Adam Under the binding influence and ratification of the Holy Ghost, or the mind of God, in which Adam, under the influence of that Spirit, predicted whatsoever should befall his posterity unto the latest generation. This is the original covenant, this is the original Father. Words spoken as a consequence of the influence of the Holy Spirit become the words of God. They will not fall to the ground unfulfilled. The everlasting covenant in our day is new only as a consequence of it having been restored to our attention recently. It is not... A new thing. It is a very old thing going back to the days of Adam. It was known to him. You were known to him. What was going to happen in your day was predicted and promised as a consequence of him. In the first meeting at Adam on Diamond, Adam was not considered to be among those who were mortal because Adam had begun life. Uh, in the garden in the presence of God. Therefore, mortals who were born into the mortal realm in that meeting began with Seth. The seven who gathered at Adam on Diamond were mortal because um, they were born outside of God's presence and they were restored again into God's presence at the meeting at Adam on Diamond. The fact is that that same thing that was in the beginning uh, will be in the end of the world also. Um, that's the covenant, that's the promise, that's the destiny, and God will surely fulfill that. I also think if we, take, we take a lot of comfort and we spend a lot of money uh, buying all of the stuff around Spring Hill, Missouri, Valley of Diamond because that was the place where Adam was, and it's the place where God will come to. Once again, I want to suggest that um, the wicked, the knavish, the proud, the boastful, those who seek the honors of men will never have possession of and be able to control or prevent the unfolding of God's work. The words Adam on Diamond mean Adam in the presence of the Father. Therefore, any place that the ancient of days comes to while Christ is there also is by definition Adam and Diaman. Therefore, it doesn't matter if a fallen and corrupt society owns a piece of real estate that they claim God is not bound by the stratagems of men. Nor are his purposes controlled by the vanities of men. And yet, if they will repent, and if they will hear what the Lord has to say, he can still work with them. But if not, then he'll work with you, assuming you came and you're willing to hear. Death of Adam, when we'll gathered together in the valley of Adam on where, and it outlines the names of those who participated, it was a series of high priests, one in each generation, because you could only have one in each generation, a total of seven generations from Adam being gathered together there in the valley of Adam on Diamond, with the residue of the posterity who were righteous, and the Lord came and administered comfort to Adam, And Adam, being filled with the Holy Ghost, gets up and he predicts all things are going to happen to his posterity down to the latest generations of time. That's in the same section of the Doctrine and Covenants that describes the First Presidency, Quorum of the Twelve, and so on. In fact, what Joseph was doing was preparing and using the church as an incubator. The incubator was supposed to produce a product. The end product of that would literally graduate from the church and it would be a king and a queen a priest and a priestess the idea being that those would then go off and they would establish their own kingdom they might use churches to um, prepare and incubate their groups but they would be fully equipped to go off and establish the kingdom of God on earth it never happened they had one dry run The one dry run occurred in the Council of Fifty in a meeting in which Joseph and Emma were made a king and a queen, a priest and a priestess. It was not done in a way that systematized or regularized it, and therefore it got lost. And in the post-martyrdom era of the church, what has happened is we've, we've adopted the phraseology of king and queen, priest and priestess, and we've incorporated it into a temple endowment, and we said, there it is, and it's owned by the church, and the church administers it. And when you're done with that, you're supposed to be a good member of the church, and that's it. You never, you never do graduate. But Joseph had turned the church over to Hiram. I mean, he was moving on to be and do something different. And Hiram was the one who was taking over and running the church. Joseph got up and complained to the members that the members were not paying attention to Hiram the way that they ought to be paying attention to Hiram because Hiram had essentially taken over and was now running the thing, not him. But all of that has been lost. It never had a fulsome enough development while Joseph was still here for us to be able to reconstruct even what the objective was. We we don't have the capacity to complete that process. And to the extent that there's any description of that or any vocabulary that relates to that, everyone assumes that that has been adopted and is incorporated into the church and the ordinances of the church. So there's a lot of work left to be done if the restoration is going to be completed we know that Joseph prophesied there would be another Adam-on-Dionon event, except that one, instead of it being prospective, with the history of the world yet to occur, and with it being reflected by prophecy from Adam filled with the Holy Ghost, in the next one, it will be retrospective, in which what has happened, returns and keys and accountability for what has happened are the subject matter of the future meeting in which the term Adam on Diamond means Adam in the presence of Ammon or in the presence of God. It is a description of an event. It is an occurrence. It's like BYU-UCLA football game. (laughs) BYU-UCLA football game happened yesterday in the Coliseum in LA, but it happened a few years ago in the Lavelle Edwards Stadium in Provo, and it was still the BYU-UCLA football game. And the fact is that if there was a flood or some other problem, you could play that football game anywhere. You could even play that in a bowl game somewhere in Louisiana. It would still be the same event. Adam on Diamond is a description of an event. And it will happen at a location that is not owned by the corporation of the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because quite frankly, they don't belong in that meeting. They won't belong in that meeting. When it occurs, it will occur on different criteria and on a different basis. How you get from where you are now to the point where it would be suitable and appropriate for an event like that to even be considered is a long, long effort because we we have a restoration to complete, we have prophecies to fulfill, we have things that need to be done, and we have covenants that need to be renewed And all of that begins again in embryo at the very basic level of faith, repentance, baptism, fellowships, collecting, tithing, assisting one another, and acting like we're Christians and acting like we care about one another. Priestly authority comes down in a line by men, but it isn't empowered until the man connects with heaven. If you go to the scriptures and you look at what I've written, I point it out, it's in there. Over and over again, the ordinations had two features, had two facets. Laying out of hands by someone that is in that tradition. And then secondly, connecting to heaven and God empowering them. But the second part of that, that is connecting to heaven and having heaven animate that, is not considered necessary by those who don't understand priesthood, but is considered vital by those who do and when God is the one that completes that process. As I point out, citing Joseph Smith's own history, his ordination to the priesthood did not happen until June of 1831, when the voice of God, as um, Genesis chapter 14, that he translated in the Joseph Smith version, that's when they got permission to do the ordination. Peter, James, and John is referred to by Joseph only... Not in section 27. That was added by a committee. That wasn't Joseph's work. All of that additional language was added by them. He refers to Peter, James, and John in his letter that's in 128. And there he says, Peter, James, and John, who came and declared themselves as possessing the keys of the dispensation of the fullness of times. Okay. Um, I'm in possession of keys to my office do you now hold the keys to my office? Do you, have the keys to my, do you have the keys to my office? I declared myself as being in possession of the keys to my office. Oh, cool. <laughs> great for Peter, great for James, great for John. I will tell you what that means. And I will tell you it only means this. It does not confer upon Joseph or all of her authority, but it does connect them in a line of patriarchs to the fathers. If you're doing a genealogy chart and you're asking, unto whom then would Joseph have been connected? He would not be connected to um, Joseph Smith Sr., Joseph Smith Sr., if he's going to be connected in, would be connected in as a son of Joseph. That connection was not something that having been established was even appreciated during Joseph Smith's lifetime. Still isn't appreciated. There is so much more to the restoration that still has to be put on the ground that the restoration has hardly begun. Joseph laid the groundwork. And in order to take the very next step, you have to return to the point of the beginning at which it ended. You have to gather back together everything that happened before in order to be able to take the next step in that line. It doesn't matter if you're over there if the destiny is up there. Develop all you want out there, but you're never going to find yourself back into that final gathering at adam on Diamond, in which Adam will be present and Adam will be present in the presence of Amon or son Amun, and a meeting will take place. But there's a lot left to be done. We, we tend to think um, as soon as we've got something that that means we've got everything. And when we've got something, what we've got is something. But everything is a lot further down the road with a lot more diligence and heed and effort and study. Um, I'm constantly amazed at our arrogance. I, I, I said it, I don't think it's in the book, but it's in the recording. I said, there is absolutely nothing special about us. Yet. And and the fact is that there can be. There can be there can be if we do it. Here's the reality, okay? The reality is that in order for the entire earth not to be smitten and utterly wasted at the Lord's return, it will be necessary for there to be a Zion. In fact, It's almost a cause and effect. You have to have the reestablishment of what was in the beginning of the world, in the end of the world also. That was a prophecy of Adam. He made it in the Valley of Adam on Diamond. Enoch was the one that preserves it, so it appears in the Enoch portion of the book of Moses, where Enoch uh, preserves um, Adam's prophecy that that same priesthood which was in the beginning of the world shall also be, shall at the end of the world be also. And and I, I have to tell you, that's not, um, you know, yada, yada, yada. Your, you know, senior chief apostolic high and holy pontificate of the ninth order. It's not that. It's not that at all. It is reestablishing something about which we know very, very little. And that has to occur only within an environment that has been insulated from the world and accepted by God. It has to be physically accepted by the Lord. That edifice has to be located in a place that is approved by the Lord. We don't know the place. We haven't built the edifice. We don't have the right to proceed. But all of this must occur before the invitation is extended. Because God is not going to come to a planet that he utterly wasted his coming. An invitation has to precede the return of our Lord. And that invitation needs to be done in his way, at a place of his choosing, in a manner that he ordains that occurs according to his will, established as a consequence of him returning what was once here back to the earth again. But as for wrapping up of the creation, and the culmination of the ages. God's direct involvement in that and the impressive nature of how that will roll forward will not be some people deciding to flee and go farm somewhere. It's, it's going to be a, a little bit different kind of enterprise culminating in a city of righteousness and a people of righteousness and, and in that sense, righteousness includes a great deal of knowledge. The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth, knowledge and, and redemption, all of that go together. Men have to extend the invitation for God to return so that men who extend that invitation are worthy of his return and the Lord can safely come without utterly destroying all who are upon the earth. Therefore, you need Zion, among other reasons, in order for there to be a place and a people to whom the Lord can safely return without utterly destroying the earth that is coming. However small, however diminutive it may be, there needs to be a Zion that extends the invitation for the Lord to return. I don't care how cleverly you parse the scriptures, God and God alone is responsible for causing them to be written in the first place. And He has a meaning in mind behind them. And He has a work that He intends to do that they will vindicate when the work is done. If you think that you can outthink the Lord and you can arrive at the right place at the right time, then go ahead and buy some farmland and in or around Independence, Missouri and wait for the burning because you're not going to be at the right place. If Independence, Missouri was where the Lord intended Zion to be, he wouldn't have told them in January of 1841 that he was going to make Nauvoo the corner of Zion. It is portable until it is fixed by him. And Adam Diamond is not simply a location that you can find on a map in Missouri. It is a description of event. The event is Adam in the presence of son Ammon, Christ. Wherever that happens, that is and will be Adam on Diamond. So buy all the land you want, build all the bleachers you expect to build. But the fact of the matter is that when Adam, the Ancient of Days, returns... There is going to be an orderly process in which a king, a mortal king, it necessarily begins there, surrenders the jurisdiction of the earth back to those who once presided over it, in turn, ultimately back to the ancient of days. That's why he's going to be here. And he, in turn, will surrender it to the Father, the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, of the end of whose government, or the increase of whose government, there shall be no end. Christ, when he returns, will have the lawful, the legal right to possess this earth, to rule it, and to govern it. And he will come to govern it. But before that day, groundwork has to be laid. There's a process. Christ lives. He is the one who redeemed all of us. He has a rightful claim as the father of us all. In the resurrection, we come forth out of the grave as his children because he purchased with his blood our continued life. We symbolize that when we're baptized by going under the water and coming up again to be born again, a new creature in Christ, as a preliminary, ceremonial, necessary sign that we accept him. He's real. I bear witness of him. I've stood in his presence. I've spoken with him. He speaks in plain humility. He has a very poor student in me. And I don't say that to be humble. I say that to be truthful. I wish I were better. But in his infinite wisdom, he chooses what he chooses. He does it as he chooses, He does it how he wants. I am certain we will see Zion because it's been promised and it's been prophesied from the beginning of time. When Father Adam prophesied, being overcome by the Spirit in the valley of Adam the Elm, and foretold what would happen to his posterity down to the latest generations, Zion was pointed to. And therefore, from the days of Adam on, all of the Holy Prophets look forward to that as the essential moment in the history of the world. Because Christ will come and will redeem the world. It will be the end of the wicked. It will be the beginning of something far better. That's been the hope. That's been the promise. That's been what they've looked forward to.
0: The foregoing are excerpts taken from Denver's talk entitled, The Mission of Elijah Reconsidered, given in Spanish Fork, Utah, on October 14, 2011. Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number four, entitled, Covenants, given in Centerville, Utah, on October 6, 2013. Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number five, entitled, Priesthood, given in Orem, Utah, on November 2, 2013. A regional conference question and answer session, held in Big Cottonwood Canyon, Utah, on September 20th, 2015. His talk entitled, Zion Will Come, given near Moab, Utah, on April 10th, 2016, and a fireside talk entitled, That We Might Become One, given in Clinton, Utah, on January 14th, 2018. If you have questions or ideas for topics that you would like to have covered in this podcast, please submit them for consideration to questions at denversnufferpodcast.com. You can request baptism by visiting bornofwater.org. A complete collection of Denver's talks, lectures, and papers are available to download free of charge at restorationarchives.com. This podcast is a volunteer effort produced under the direction of Denver Snuffer. We hope you'll share it with everyone interested in learning more about Christ, the coming Zion, and the restoration of authentic Christianity now underway in our time.